this is Joy Gilfell and host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy, and I'm here to talk about me today, but I'm going to have Debbie David and Sinead Kelts to respond and talk about their experience of learning what I learned over the past 50 years in my life, but specifically in the past 10 to 12 years as president of the coalition and they being in and out or working with the board as we've gone through these transitions because they have very different perspectives on what I experienced as a businesswoman coming into a completely unfamiliar territory. So the subject is blind spots, how we get them, how we can see through them, and the blinders we have because of our prejudices, prejudgments and our preconditioning and our pre-assumptions that we are set up with when we approach the subject of the criminal legal system, the criminal justice systems, jails, prisons, you know, all of the things that have to do with people being bad, people having illness or mental instability, mental health issues, poverty, social issues, all the diseases, diseases of our society. <clears throat> so I'm going to start for, with a short introduction, I hope it's short, on the last 50 years of my life and how I was preconditioned to have certain beliefs and blinders on, even though when I started working with Irene Morgan at the coalition in 2010, I thought I was a pretty well-rounded and broad-minded individual. And the reason I thought that is because I grew up on a farm. I, was, I learned a lot about conservation, about farming, about business, about how social structures work in an organic farming community. And I'd been involved. I ran a newspaper there. I was the edit, co-editor, actually, of the Panoramic Advertiser. It was a regional newspaper. I moved up to being an editor by the time I was 16, 17 years old. I had started out in sales. It was a young startup paper, similar to what the Cascadia Weekly has been for many years here in Whatcom County. So when I went out to go to college and I started studying what was my career going to be, I went out to college. I, I was in Air Force ROTC where I became a sharpshooter and a I did drill team back then. Then I went on to the legislature, worked in the legislature on and off for four different legislative sessions for three different state representatives. Two of them were really rigid Republican. One was a pretty liberal Democrat, which was interesting. As a secretary, you can work for Democrats and Republicans, because once you learn legislative processes, the politics are just the politics and the issues go all over the place. So I worked for four different legislative sessions, which amounted to basically two years of training in legislative business. Then I ended up moving to Whatcom County and became a student at Western, studying politics, poli-sci, 
media and law and justice, social systems. And I got a job working at campus police as a student officer, the very first female officer that drove a prowl car was actually working security off. I wasn't just being a ticket ticket made. I was I was actually doing the work of a student officer, you know, intercepting parties, doing things before we called in, before Western actually had was labeled a police force. So I thought I was pretty skill-setted by the time I was 25 to 35 years old and started and went out to become a real estate agent and do business in the community I worked in. I actually got awards from the Realtors Political Action Committee way back in the early 80s because of the work I was doing in the, in the legislature to actually cover legislative affairs for the Realtors Association here in Whatcom County. I worked at SPIE and built a couple of systems up there to help them. Now, SPIE is the Society for Photo-Optical Instrumentation Engineers. Those guys do meetings all over the world. They're on the cutting edge of the Einstein types. All the people who are doing the cutting edge research in science, technology, data. You know, you talk about lasers, fibers, computers, building the, the computer chips, designing robotics going to the moon, all of these people working in astronomy and physics and quantum physics and, you know, engineering. And I worked for Terry Montagna, the technical director there, planning out how we could host conferences and events all over the world and how we could increase our range, increase our return doing all these things. So I built systems there. And then I got pregnant and I ended up having to choosing to leave the professional business world nine to five and going home to raise my family. And those were economic reasons. There's a bunch of reasons, but I chose really, I realized that I wasn't going to get paid enough at work to be able to raise the quality of family and do the work that I was committed to do as a mother. And I knew that my experience as a businesswoman would actually allow me to go home and raise a family and I could write articles and do stuff on the side. So I ended up becoming an author, an investigative author, and I wrote articles for Business Pulse magazine, for Apropos magazine. I developed a column for The Productive Woman. And at the same time, I had just finished the work I'd done in Fairhaven at the, the, on the Fairhaven Task Force. I actually built the Fairhaven Task Force group to develop a long-range plan for Fairhaven, and it was a it was a community planning forum that produced the Fairhaven 1990 Task Force report, and the public and Fairhaven was actually getting their feet on the ground. We had been able to attract the ferry system, the Alaska Marine Highway ferry system, to Whatcom County. The community had had developed the town square based upon the recommendations of the task force. People had donated, you know, there was all kinds of things that came out of the visionary process. And so Fairhaven was moving forward. We were at the cutting edge of, you know, Expo 86. We were leading into, you know, a really strong economic development time. So I felt pretty self-satisfied. I'd also already managed and developed the Visitor and Convention Bureau when I was hired by Marvin Wolf to be the office manager. We had virtually no budget and I had... I was working in a, in a one room down in the basement of the Leopold 
And by the time I left there in two years, we had 40 volunteers working in four locations in Ferndale, Blaine, at the rest area and down in the mall, or uh, not Bellisphere, Bellingham Mall on Samish Way. So I felt like I had a pretty broad understanding of the way the world worked. I'd also gone to, I'd also worked in California for my brother because my real estate license, I ended up using that during um, a period of time in California. We had, as a, as a community, gone from, um, you know, 18% interest rates in those days. I went down and helped him manage a marina and I'd helped work with the Army Corps of Engineers and do development. So I felt pretty cocky um, moving into motherhood and I started to raise my family and do independent work. And I became a national sales trainer in a networking company and a trainer of human potential in short. Then along came the year 2000, the meltdown of um, our economy with the uh, Y2K worry technology, future shock technology hitting us all. And then followed by the dot-com bu bubble, the 2008 meltdown, economic meltdown. And I was watching a complete transformation in our economy as business people. And I went, wow, my children aren't going to inherit the same world that I was going to inherit. And it woke me up big time because I started looking at trends in our society at economic trends. Now, what's this got to do with law and justice? It has everything in the world to do with it, although I didn't know it at the time. What I realized between 1998 and 2003, our world went through a seismic shift in how we do business. And by 2003 to 2005, we had already experienced things like the border being shut down heavy because of the Patriot Act caused by 9-11. We'd had all kinds of things happen in the world of technology. We'd experienced the um, taking down of the Berlin Wall, we'd experienced Princess Diana's death. And I'm not going to be shy about this. In 9-11, we witnessed over and over our country and our nation and two of the biggest symbols of economic success being blown out of the sky. And that caused a huge psychological impact to everybody in the community from the business world to leadership, to law enforcement, to homeland security, all the way down and everything in our law, law and justice system flipped upside down, the border closed and Whatcom County was impacted. So I'd been working on trying to figure out how in the world do I help my sons and their generation survive in a completely changed world that was radically upside down. <clears throat> my experience at one point was to realize that the way I had been doing business for 40 years, I had an 80% prospecting and an 80% close rate in the world of sales and marketing. I was working in the organic living foods industry. And by 2003, my market had flipped upside down. I had a 20% close rate, a 20% retention rate. That's a complete opposite. And I started studying the nature of business, the nature of how we were doing things. That takes me up very quickly, I hope, to 2010, 
when suddenly I am getting ready to launch a program, a peak potentials or a peak performance program called Flipping the Joy Switch to help people who are leaders in the marketplace transition to a changed world and to deal with the addiction issues and the trauma issues that had beset my uh, family and my community as per evidence I got from the young people going through school who were having problems entering the new marketplace out of high school. We were dealing with a lot of, actually in Whatcom County, we had several murders that were committed by young people. We had suicides. We had people getting killed in the street. You know, we had upheaval. This was 20, around 2009, 2010. And just before I suddenly ended up in a meeting and finding out that the prison industrial complex had their eyesights. I didn't know it was the prison industrial complex at the time. I suddenly found out in Whatcom County that the public was going to be asked to pass another tax after we'd already passed a bunch of taxes to build a jail, which we'd already built. And then they wanted to build another jail and tax us another bunch to build a 2,450 bed jail in a population where we only had roughly a couple, 200,000 people. And that seemed preposterous to me. So I went back and I studied and read the, what was called then the, the jail facilities needs assessment. So in 2010, when I discovered that Whatcom County was on some kind of a forced march to build a 2,450-bed jail out in the county, it was a little bit of a yellow flag, maybe a red flag in my mind. And I just went, why are we building a 2,450-bed jail in a population of only roughly 200,000 people? So I actually went and read the, what the county called a needs assessment. But when you, when I read it again in 2013, it was called the jail facility needs assessment, regardless of what they named it. When I read it, what I read was that this was a spec sheet, like a prospectus for a real estate investment company, because that was my background. I was in business. and. The problem is, is that the st statistics that were used to build that needs assessment were distinctly flawed. And I heard the sheriff in a meeting at one of our public meetings about the plans to build this jail. He admitted publicly then that, you know, I'm really sorry, I did provide the statistics to the jail contractors <coughs> who wrote this I did provide the statistics to the jail industry contractors who produced that needs assessment, but it's not my fault that they didn't understand that those were statistics during the time of rapid expansion when we suddenly opened the 2004 jail and arrested all those people who had been out on paper warrants. So it was actually an anomaly of statistics that gave a false reading for how fast the growth of crime was going to happen in Whatcom County, because it had nothing to do with the crime rate. It had everything to do with the management of the jail and the justice system. And when I realized that, I went, something is wrong with this. Why are they wanting to take a jail? We already had 
three jails, by the way. We had the juvenile jail, which was in the top of the courthouse. We had the main jail downtown, which everybody called the jail. And then we had the work release or the jail industries facilities that was built over on Division Street. I didn't even understand that we had three jails. All I knew at the beginning of this was that we had an out of control budget. We'd passed multiple sales tax. We'd passed a behavioral health tax. The public was being taxed big time. And they wanted now to build this massive, basically a fortress on 40 acres out in the county. And I just went, we've got something's wrong here. And I don't know what it is. But the problem I had, and this is why it matters that I did this blind spots study, it's why it matters that it's taken me this long to understand what's happened, is that I couldn't reconcile in my mind that all the council people who I had voted for happily, happily for 40 years, our sheriffs of the past 20 or 30 years, I'd worked with as a student officer up until 2000, until I... Um, started having kids and uh, Sheriff Bill Elfo became our sheriff. But up until then, I interviewed, I knew the other sheriffs. I knew the councilmen. I knew our state legislators. I knew, you know, Shirley Van Zanten, our executive. I knew these people. I trusted them. I knew that they were running and they had the business of our community well in hand. I'd voted for them. And suddenly in 2010, I'm looking at them going, what are you guys doing recommending that we invest all this money in a fortress, in a huge jail, when what we need help with is all these young people who are coming out of high school, all the people living in poverty who'd been bucked out during the economic downturn of 2000, 2010, they needed social services, they needed mental health treatment, they need substance abuse treatment, they needed wet houses, they need all these things that would help them get back into the mainstream, get back in the saddle as business people building a community. We need people actually producing solid business and solid revenue in the community so that the uh, economic vitality of the community raises instead of taking massive amounts of money out of the system to fund larger and larger government enterprises that have hard costs. It just as a business person, I just looked at it and went, something's wrong. So that's about the time when I met you, Shanae, and I met you, Debbie. Um, Shanae, you were coming out of, the, out of the prison system. And Debbie, you were working with someone who was dealing with the prison system. So give me a, a brief reflection back on what you think about what I was saying when you first met me. Shanae, why don't you start? Okay, sure. Thanks, Joy. Glad to be here today. Thank you to our listeners real quick. So to be really honest, when I first met you and was learning about all the things that you had um, experienced and learned, it was not really any news to me, I guess. I mean, I kind of, because I had lived through that and walked through the whole system and um, I was, you know affected by all that. I just, the things I didn't know were the, uh, the massive amounts, right? Like the massivity of the spending of what my uh, actions were costing the community, what, um, what my physical body was worth to 
the legal system, you know, um, all I saw was my own, you know, legal financial obligations, those things piling up, but I had no idea that it went beyond those things, those that I was responsible for personally, that my community was responsible for my, my actions, that, you know, our government was making money off of me being in trouble and staying in trouble. Um, also, some of the things, you know, services that I was provided, treatment, mental health services, all those things, I never paid for those. I didn't get a bill for any of that. I got bills for the fines that I was supposed to pay based on the crimes that I had committed. I was also, you know, charged to live in the prison. I was, as an inmate, the money that I worked for, if I worked over a certain number of hours in the prison, my pay was capped. So it didn't matter if I worked beyond that capped amount, the rest was going to be going to the prison. And, um, and I knew that, but the stuff outside, like the effects of the community and legislation, those are the things that I didn't really realize. And when I, when I understood that it was a really, uh, almost an additional oppression on me to then give back to my community even more, which then made my body and my actions, uh, probably much, much more than it needed to be. I mean, I was overdoing paying back my community um, in my, you know, looking back during when I was doing those things like volunteering and working in nonprofits and um, giving back to the community I took from for so long. I was doing it in the moment to kind of get a couple things done, more self-esteem, and also prove that I could be a community member and that I could contribute. You know, it was an eye opener for me as well. Wow, that's really, you've said things there that I haven't heard you say before. And that's fascinating because the trauma, I, I hadn't actually thought about when you're in the system, you too are siloed in your own reality. You've got a window through which you look at what you think is happening. And the fact that, people are criminalized and you've become a felon and a bad person and a bad this and a bad that, and you've been judged when you come out and you want to redeem yourself, you overwork to try to compensate. I'd never even thought about that. Wow. That's amazing. So Debbie, when we transition, you know, from my story to Shanae's story and we introduce your perspective, because you came in from a completely different angle and what was your experience and how did how did meeting the restorative community coalition and me based upon your worldview, your silo, how did that feel to you? This is, remember, this is 2010. Well, thank you, Joy. And thank you, Shanae. And yes, it was a wake up call for me to meet uh, you, Joy and Irene 12 years ago today that working in the system um, trying to help people caught up in the criminal legal system. My, my spouse at the time, um, I was trying to help him and to come in and meet Joy and Irene and to learn how many other families have been affected, how mass incarceration has damaged our communities. Um, it was 
very shocking. It was very different from what my worldview was from growing up in, in the Midwest and from what my personal experience had been as so, a mother. So just to be clear, you had worked, you'd been working inside the legal justice system and with, you know, government systems were married and were coming out and looking at it and coming to the coalition to get some support in the challenges you were facing as a mother, correct? Is that, am I hearing you right? That's sort of your view? Yes. Um, I, I definitely saw our system not working the way I was raised to believe it was supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And that I was deeply concerned about the future of my, of my kids, of my family to know that um, a minor mistake that they might make could, to me, everything was over penalized um, and over criminalized uh, making a, an honest mistake could put them in a position of losing their freedom. This was messed up. Something had to be done about this. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to sit on the sidelines and let it just continue. So you came to the coalition looking for answers and looking for how you can, could continue. And that's when you met Irene and I. That's correct. So when I started working in the system and looking at the justice system, I came from a personal viewpoint where when I worked at Western Washington University at Campus Police as a student officer, one of my friends was murdered in the Hillside Strangler case. So I knew the police officers who found the body. I knew some of the people who were part of the investigation team. Uh, I was friends with her fiance at the time, he was another student officer at Western. And so I was intimately involved in the crisis and the fear and the happiness that the police had arrested this, this man. And yet it was still traumatizing to realize that that violence was right here in the middle of us in Bellingham. And I was really grateful that we had a prosecutor over the next few years that were and investigative attorneys and <clears throat> police that were able to put this man in prison and solve other major crimes. So I was very, I felt very, while I was traumatized and hurt by the whole thing, I was also, I also knew that we were psychologically, I believed that we were safe as long as the, the police were on duty and they were doing their stuff. I believed in them. I also believed in the um, like I said, I believed in the legislators and the process that we went through, even though I had decided not to go into, into the legislative work because I realized that the Republican Democrat, Democrat war game that was happening with, with uh, Watergate and politics and our political system had flaws in it. It never occurred to me that that problem at the state level and the federal level also was infecting our local judgment and our local lawmakers and our our councils because we were all local we all knew each other so it stood to reason especially because i'd been in business and we had a strong economy at the time i mean we had a strong economic visionary system that was working so when i walked into this 
I actually literally walked into a room where Irene Morgan was the host because she was the founder of the coalition. And I went to the meeting thinking that the subject was about helping the middle-class business people and those bucked out of society re-enter a new economy after the economic meltdown of 2008 and 2010. And the reason I believe that is the person who invited me to the meeting was one of the top, they call them headhunters in business, one of the top recruiters for people in the Fortune 500 companies. So make a long story short, I started looking at that and I started working in Whatcom County to follow the breadcrumbs and follow the money to figure out what was wrong with, you know, what was this issue that, that the community was trying to build a huge economic engine by building a prison industrial complex instead of building recovery programs for our students who were having problems getting out of school for young mothers and people who had been bucked into poverty by the meltdown of the earlier years that to help enter small, young, enterprising people deal with the technology shift that they were facing. Corporations simply hired new IT directors. They simply hired new media and PR people. They, they could have, they could hire people to, to, to fill in the gaps of economics, but the free enterprise people in Whatcom County couldn't. And at that time, in 2010, I actually was aware how many of our small businesses were going out of business or were deeply challenged and how many of those owners who used to run local businesses were suddenly sleeping on couches or renting rooms from friends and trying to pretend that they were still successful in business when their market had flipped upside down with them, when they were going bankrupt themselves, they'd lost houses, they'd lost careers. But one of the things that I knew in business is you always pretend that everything's okay. Because if you let anybody know that you're weak, the predators in the industry that you're in will actually come after your, they'll target your, your audience and they'll take your clients. And so I knew that that was a pattern and I watched it and I was studying on why do we do this and what's happening. So jump forward to 2020. After 10 years of studying on what was going on in Whatcom County, I had sat on, you know, I'd sat through hundreds of public meetings. I'd sat through council meetings. I'd sat through law and justice committee meetings. I'd sat through the incarceration prevention reduction task force meetings. I'd sat through stakeholders advisory committee meetings. I'd sat through, you know, um, contractor, jail industry contractor controlled hearings about the jail and you know, I kept paying attention and I ended up because I couldn't figure it out. It, it wasn't making sense to me. Still, I ended up running for county executive. I ended up running the, the political action committee. I had to divorce myself from the restorative community coalition at the time because the coalition's job was just straight up. How do we educate and how do we help and how do we advocate for people who are coming through the prison system? re-entering society, getting their legs back underneath them and getting back into the groove of being able to be productive members of society. So I did all this field work on the side as I was studying what's happened to our society that we're in a mess as a community. 
And why are people polarized? Why are we not focusing on building our children back up and building small free enterprise back up, which is the backbone of society? And instead, building larger and larger corporatized government systems. And there was a day when the Vera Institute of Justice was reporting on the work that they did coming out of the IP Incarceration Prevention Reduction Task Force. And one of the things that they talked about was that there isn't a lot of research that has been done on what happens to people who enter and go through the jail, the jail system. And they talked about the psychological impact. There was a new study out where they had talked about the psychological impact of being arrested and held inside the jail for 24 hours as different from the impact of them leaving in 72 hours and much harder it was, how much harder it was to help people re-enter society. And I realized that that was something I needed to study because very few, you know, and I went to the very Institute and I said, why doesn't somebody study it? I mean, that's just logical. Why don't you talk to the people that you're incarcerating to find out what we need to fix the system? And the woman said, you know, Nobody's done that work because it's outside the scope of what we're hired to do. Our job is typically to work with the governments to talk about what happens to people post-arrest, not pre-arrest. They don't typically talk about prevention and at that time, prevention, intervention, pre-arrest, social issues, all the societal gaps in our system that stop people from going into the justice system in the first place. And I went, wow. And you know what? She recommended that I go get a class up at Western of a bunch of students to do the interviews. Well, I'd sat through enough meetings to know that people coming through the system were so traumatized. You couldn't put a bunch of young people on an interview process and ask them to ask these people what happened to them. I mean, you're talking about people who have been traumatized for decades and are trying to deal with mass problems. That would be the, the epitome of cruelty. Number one, I'd already worked with 100 students at Western, many of whom had already gone through the jail and justice system for minor fraction infractions that actually put them in the court system and actually changed their careers. So I knew that we had a serious problem. So I started a project and it was to study what actually happens to people who go into the system up close and personal. So I started interviewing, I decided to set aside all my beliefs and judgments about what I thought was going on, because, you know, as older folks, we tend to think we know everything. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm going to start different. I'm going to say, what happened to you? Just tell me what happened in a way that you can tell me what happened. Okay. That you feel psychologically safe. I'm not going to write all this stuff down about you and about your case. This is not about the shame blame game. It's not about avoiding accountability. It's about you giving me a report on what, what actually really happened to you, how much it costs you, and what's your life like subsequent to the arrest? Like, what happened? And I started making notes. And as I started making notes, and I started drawing diagrams, and some of you know that I do this. But when I started drawing diagrams and charting out what happened to them, I'm going, wow, this is not what we talked about in the Vera Institute process and in the IPRTF about charting the chain of what happens to people according to the law and justice system, 
it's the same skeleton drawing. Fishbone diagram is what they called it, but it has a whole different other side to it because the people going through the system are subject to the system. They're not the people controlling the system. So the story was radically different. So as I started drawing these diagrams and following this life path, I went, wow. So what happened to you before you went into the system? Like in the next, in that 72 hour window, before you ended up in the system, what happened to you emotionally and mentally and psychologically? And what actually, what happened to your family? What happened to them? And I found out that they go through an investigation that everybody it goes into shock and trauma. And there's a whole series of a world that happens in that first 24 to 72 hours. And in the 24 to 72 hours prior to the arrest or the incident. And I went, oh my gosh, that we don't talk about anywhere because that hurts and it's too emotional and people don't want to talk about it because I recognize that when there were people that I picked up from the jail to bring them back, like people who had been arrested, young people who'd gotten arrested, older people who'd gotten arrested. They come out of the jail, and as a person working for the Restorative Community Coalition, I picked, I picked them up, and I said, so what happened? How are you doing? And they'd always go, oh, I'm fine. And I went, well, do you want to talk about it? No. No, just take me home. And I said, well, what actually happened to you? Some of them said, I don't really remember. Most of them said, I don't want to talk about it. They just reiterated, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, well, what can I do for you? Can I go get you something? Do you need water? Do you need, you know, what do you need? I just want to go home. And I remembered that the shock and awe to their soul for what happened to them, they may have caused an accident. They may have hit somebody. They may have had a drug overdose. They may have had who knows what that caused them to put it in there. But that window of 24 to 72 hours, they really don't want to talk about. And I realized that there was a button there and I was going to have to do some more research. So then I said, okay, so let's not talk about that. And let's go back to what happened in the 24 to 72 hours before the incident happened, what led up to it and who did what and why did you end up in this place in the first place? If you knew, if you knew, what did you know about that? And so they would give me a whole body of other knowledge. And then I went, well, what happened? Because I'm on a research path, right? I went, well, what happened in your life before this that led up to that 24 to 72 hours? And I got a whole body of other research and knowledge. And in the end of it, I went, oh my gosh, you guys had an experience, but what happened to everybody else? Why were you called in the first place? And I did a different set of inquiry with another. So I did 53 people that I, I, I uh, interviewed that had been what is familiarly called the perpetrator, but they had been the person who caused a specific incident to unravel. And because of their action, whether it was a mistake, it was, and what I found out is that none of these people that caused these problems intended to do it. That was amazing to me. And that was genuinely true. They were in some other 
silo living in their world and they took an action that was a reaction to something that was distressing in their life and their mistake became a huge problem. And then once that mistake was identified, they were arrested, isolated, put in a cell. They were taken away from their family. Their family, their entire world fell apart because the law and justice system now owns the body. They are called a corpus, not a corpse because they're living. But in the legal world, they're called a corpus. And they suddenly went from being on one side of the corporate government balance sheet to a different side of the corporate balance sheet. And they become part of an of a asset class that is actually traded in the stock market as part of municipal assets and, and securities. That's a whole other conversation. Now, I only knew that because I started investigating and studying on it. But what literally happens is at the point of arrest, they become the property of and the fiduciary responsibility of and a financial asset or liability to the corporation of Whatcom County, to the municipalities, to the governments who now own them and are responsible for their care and feeding. And that really woke me up to the problem we have. It's almost like we have a split brain condition in our society where the humans that pay the taxes over here are in one conversation where the people who are running the corporate systems and the business of government are working in a completely different balance sheet, a totally different cash flow system, and a totally different language system. And then I started really looking at it. But at the time, as I was doing this, this what is now called the blind spots chart, unexpected findings from jail trauma research, and I specifically diagrammed out at that point the Whatcom County jail trauma chart, which talks about radicalized acute distress under duress that happens to the person who gets arrested. I talk about the re repetitive accelerated trauma that happens when they're arrested and jailed and then have to go to court. So there's an accumulated trauma situation that happens to these people coming through the system. And by the time they're released in that 24 to 72 hour window, depending on when the court systems see them and they're arraigned and they're either charged or not, bail set and all those things happen, all of those behaviors that happen from the point of arrest to the bail, to the, to the charging, to all these things, they create different financial instruments that then the, the, the people are then subject to, and there's a whole new language. And so there's emotional trauma when you enter the system, there's emotional trauma of you being accused, there's the guilt factor of feeling what, that what you did actually caused harm often to people that you love or people you don't even know. And that your action actually causes deep distress in the community and you're shamed and then you're thrown into a building where the people inside are, have been there for a while, they're traumatized and suddenly you realize that you've been part, you've become part of the criminal class. You've become part of the people who are shunned in our society. And you've been part, you actually enter a place that as a child and during high school, you're always taught you shouldn't do any of this because once you're there, you become part of the unwashed or the, the bad criminals. So there's huge shock that happens. And what it does is it causes my research. Now it's only on 53 people and it was a 
just a human being asking questions. But when I started looking at the symptoms that happened to people, I realized it in the, in the, in the bottom end of this thing, what people would experience was almost like a split brain reality. They had a perception of the world. That was one thing suddenly because of an incident, they're in a whole different reality that doesn't exist in their place. And it actually makes it difficult to connect between the right and left brain. And this leads to problems. And I looked up symptoms and I looked all over the place and I found that complex post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the symptoms, one of the conditions that people have listed. Some people go into Stockholm syndrome. Some people exhibit symptoms of radicalization. They split brains, schizophrenia, all these different things happen. So did they have the condition before they went in? Or did they have the condition because they went in? That was part of my inquiry. And I went back and started studying the, um, I started to ask, well, what happened to the people who put you in there? And I'm not talking about the police. I'm talking about the people who called 911, the people who were calling to get help for you. And I started, or that were there on site because I wanted to see what the difference was. And so I interviewed police officers and emergency responders and attorneys in court. I interviewed people who were in the mental health field, who were part of the crisis recovery program, people who were in the addiction intervention industry. I inter interviewed an emergency room management person who was in charge of the entire emergency room. I talked to family members, brothers, sisters, employers, uncles, aunts. I talked to another 26 people who had different roles. And it was shocking. And this is what I want to say to the audience. It was shocking for me to find out that none of the people that I interviewed that had brought in, had called 911 to get help, called 911 to get the police to come do an arrest. None of them were calling because a crime was being committed, which is the story that we tell ourselves in the criminal legal system. They were calling to get help for a loved one or a family or to solve a problem that they saw was a public health and safety problem to someone else. So they were calling 911 to get help, which is interestingly enough, what I believe to be true too. When I was born and raised, we established the 911 system. We established it so that people could be quickly served in the event of an accident or a catastrophe or a problem. And the psychosis that I experienced, interestingly enough, the, the symptoms, many of the symptoms that were happening to the inmate, the person who was arrested, <laughs> were similar trauma symptoms that were showing up with these people who didn't go into the jail system. They too were traumatized because their homes were suddenly investigated. They were suddenly um, put under the gun of, of problems, you know, that were showing up and suddenly everybody's scared. Plus they experienced a high end of costs that suddenly happened to their family. They had emergency costs. They had tow costs. They had uh, daycare costs for their children because the spouse was suddenly taken out of this. I mean, there was a whole other plethora of things. Now, I'm not going to keep rattling on about all that stuff because I put it into a chart. It's called the blind spots, unexpected findings from jail trauma research. This side of the chart, this is a, this is like an eight and a half by 14 inch document, or maybe it's 11 by 17. 
on one side is what happens to the people who go into the system and why does it disturb them so much that when they come out, they don't want to talk about it at all. And then what happens to the people who are trying to help and either caused additional problems or they came on the scene as a 911 responders and don't want to get in trouble for violating laws to take care of people or to help people. And they have to write up legal documents and reports and, you know, call the right people or they're going to get in trouble if they respond improperly to a 911 situation. And I realized that we have a massively inflamed community that is living with constant inflammation in the emergency realm and in the public health and safety realm that everyone in our community, and I mean virtually everyone I had talked to, knew was a problem, but we, societally, we were polite. We didn't want to talk about it. And even in the civic systems, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to get anybody in trouble. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to go into a court of law ourselves and having to testify. We don't want to talk about it because we don't know what to do. We don't want to talk about it because the law and justice system is so big that we're terrified to speak out about anything. And this is the silencing that we're dealing with in our systems at every single level from bottom to top because we're disconnected from our own humanity. And that's what I learned after doing 79 interviews and publishing up my research into this document that you can get at the restorativecommunitycoalition.org. And it's material that when I presented it to the IPRTF, I was finally given some time in one of the subcommittee meetings to talk about it. I got a few minutes and then it was, it was brushed aside and no one has asked me about it since. So it's an, and, and yet in 2020, we went under an emergency condition with the government, with COVID and the emergency problems. And for the last two years, we've been living under the command and control rank and file uh, process of government where basically the sheriff and the technical advisory committee is in charge, the executive branch, the prosecutor, the sheriff and the executive branch control our entire economy relative to Whatcom County, the government corporation. And the people have been um, sent away. We, we're not really able to talk within the system except through some Zoom calls. And I think this is at the root of what happened in 2021 when the, when the uh, homeless were camping on the city hall lawn protesting, asking for emergency shelter to be provided. And our county corporation didn't provide emergency shelter because technically they were camping inside the city on city property. So it, it was able, the problem was able to be shuffled off to the city to have to deal with when the people who were dealing with homelessness and poverty and trauma and the COVID crisis and they needed help were people from all over Whatcom County. And so the waters get muddy between jurisdictions and we don't provide the solutions because we're all scared to talk about it. So I did a rep another report called the Whatcom County 98225. It's a video report that's available also at therestorativecommunity.org. But I want to stop there because I want to go back to talking about um, the revelation that I had 
that we're working at the law and justice system and to solve the problems of the humans that are living in our community. We need to actually look at it through a completely different viewfinder. And that's the viewfinder of, of wellness and health. And so I'd like to give it back to you, Shanae and Debbie, and see what you have to say about this. And we've got a few minutes left, but I, I just want to get feedback from you, Debbie, first, and then from you, Shanae, because you both have been here over this 10 years that we've been studying on these problems and we've been working at it from the field to try to figure out how do we solve these problems and how do we help our community, all of our members of our community, deal with this huge problem that we've identified that does in fact exist here. Debbie, do you want to start? Yes. Well, thank you, Joy. And I just can't say enough how much I appreciate your do beyond due diligence of how you tackle things and research them and you just take it as far as as far as it goes in order to find out what need what we need to know as citizens in order to make positive changes in our community and and to heal our people families communities as a whole um, one of the things that came to me while you were talking is there's a quote and i believe um, it was Max Planck, uh, who's credited as the founder of nanotechnology. He said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. <laughs> How you know what? Imagine? That is so true. And that's true. I have found that to be true in every single one of those 10-year windows that I was doing study. And I really learned it at yeah. SPIE, where you where we were dealing with nanotechnology. I mean, what he says is so true. Yeah. Um, and I just see all of this as uh, the reason that even we are dealing with increased crime that's showing up in the news lately yep. is the breakdown of the social foundation of social systems, of social structures. People are not going to take something that doesn't belong to them if their needs are met, if they have a place to live, if they have a food to eat, if, if they're being cared for um, in community and, and their mental health issues are being addressed. We have yep. a way to resolve this and we can and must do this. So thank you, Joy, for all your research. It's so very valuable. Thank you, Deb. And what are your closing comments, Shanae? Oh, thanks, Joy. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, thank you to our listeners again. Um, I just had it in my mind. So <laughs> there's our timer. <laughs> sorry. So the closing comments I have are a matter of changing perspective and not finding value in things outside of ourselves but actually finding the value within ourselves instead. And that has been a huge turning point in my personal growth and path for success and breaking cycles of recidivism and family imprisonment is knowing that me, I have value and that when I'm having a hard time, one of the best things I've learned is if I'm having a rough time, Number one, talk to somebody about it. And two, go help somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. And 
that was something my grandmother said when I was a kid and I never really understood. You know, I thought it was a bad thing but it can be used as a good thing. And we have solutions to these issues. We have the ability as humans to rectify our past and make a better future. It's what we do in the present. Everything we do is going to affect someone else. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what I get. Well, what's interesting is that both of you affected the fact that we wrote as a coalition Irene and I did the actual writing, but Debbie, you did a lot of the research actually for us because you were not, you were one of the people who'd been silenced by the system because of the circumstances that you were living in at the time and you couldn't become public. So you couldn't speak. But when we wrote the book called the stop punishing taxpayers, start rebuilding community report in 2015 for the County council for the voters, for the public to understand the problem we had discovered. Irene had started in the coalition in 2006. By 2015, we had learned that we were working at the problem from the wrong direction. We needed to work from the human side to figure out how to solve the community problems that were leading into the marketing arm of the jail system that fed the prison industrial complex. So we had to work at prevention way before at ACEs, at early childhood experiences, at family dynamics, at trauma, at disabilities, at all these things. So that little report, although it was written in 2015, is highly relevant today. And that report came directly from the experience of talking to literally hundreds of people who had been in the system, hundreds of of over 100 students at Western and Whatcom Community College and at the Charter College and other places where, where they had come and interned with us and did different kinds of research. That report is full of information that's useful today, still, in rebuilding our society. So I want to thank you both for coming on here and, and giving me a forum to actually speak about my own lived experience of studying on the problem so that we can cher- change it. Because serving as president of this coalition has forced me to have to step outside of uh, politics, to step outside of my judgments force me to do the research that's necessary for us as a coalition to be able to lead a different conversation. And that's what we're doing here with I Change Justice um, podcast. And I want to thank you both for having the courage to step beyond the silence, to step out and have these very difficult conversations for you, for me and everyone. So thank you both very much. Um, What is it called? Peace out is what they say now. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.